before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. You are such a, a great and an awesome God. And we thank you, Lord, that we can open up and hear from you, that your word is not an old book, but it's the living, breathing word of God. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, I just pray that it would minister to each heart who's here tonight, that again, you would be our teacher, that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase within me, Lord, that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Now, to catch you up, Mark 14, in the gospel of Mark, we know that, that the beginning of Mark was a picture of three reactions to Jesus Christ. We saw the reaction of the priests and the scribes who sought to put Jesus to death. We'll look a little more at that tonight. We saw the reaction of Mary, who was a woman who understood who Jesus Christ really was. And she gave the most valued possession that she had. An alabaster flask of oil, which was worth about a year's wages. And she poured it out all over his feet. Again, making a sweet aroma to everything that she touched. Then we saw Judas as one who had agreed to betray Jesus Christ. Then last week we looked at the preparation for the Passover and what the Passover really is. We also looked at Jesus prophesying that all of his disciples would deny him. And then we saw last week really clearly the anguish that Jesus felt over sin. You know, a lot of times because of Christmas and because of Easter, we learn, we become common in our reaction to the cross. May the cross never grow common. Amen? May we never think of it as being something common because it was the most awesome act of love in the history of the world. And I believe that it grieves God that we've turned Christmas into Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We've got our eyes off Jesus Christ. Amen? Not that, you know, if you have a Rudolph in your home, you're not going to hell or anything. But you know what? It is all about Jesus. And we need to keep our eyes on him. And you know what? That last week we saw really clearly just how the Lord had said, you know, he, he was grieved to the depths of his soul. Where the Lord even, it says he fell down. The anguish was so heavy upon him. And you know what? As he knew that he was going to the cross, it was not the physical pain that he dreaded as much as the, as the spiritual separation from the Father. And that's what sin does. Sin brings death and it brings separation. It separates us from Almighty God and it brought death into the world. Before there was sin, there was no death. There was no death in the Garden of Eden until Adam and Eve sinned. Nothing died. Plants didn't die. Animals didn't die. There was no death. And we saw even way back in the Garden of Eden that the first time that there was sin, the Lord had to slay and kill an animal to cover them up. He provided skins for them. Where we see again, for the first time in the Bible that we see bloodshed, it's for the covering of sin. And that didn't change all the way to the day of Jesus Christ. We saw his betrayal by Judas last week, and then we saw the, his arrest and desertion of all the apostles. So this week, we're going to see Jesus on trial. And this is amazing to me that people still today, there's nothing as new under the sun, the Bible says. And as they put Jesus on trial 2,000 years ago, the world is still putting Jesus on trial today. And we're going to take a look at that. So we're going to pick up tonight, beginning in verse 53. So just flip there to 53. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll get through the rest of tonight. Now tonight... Again, time willing, we're going to see over the next two weeks, Jesus being put on trial by two different distinct groups of people. The religious leaders of the day and the governmental leaders of the day. We're also going to see how the reaction comes from those closest to him when Jesus is arrested. Now, last week we saw at the very end of the text that Jesus was taken into captivity. And it says in verse 50, then they all forsook him and fled. As soon as Jesus was captured, all those who said, Lord, I'll never deny you. Lord, I'm going to be with you no matter what, especially Peter. Lord, I'll never leave you nor forsake. Lord, I'm always going to be there, even if I have to die. As soon as he was arrested, they all bailed. 
And what's amazing to me is remember that I titled the message last week, Who Arrested Whom? Because Jesus was on a mountain, and people came carrying torches and lanterns. And let me ask you a question. If you're up there at midnight, and you're looking down, and there's six or 700 people coming with torches and lanterns, do you think there's a chance you might see them coming? Amen? Of course they did. But the Lord didn't flee. But what's amazing to me, when they came and they said, Are you Jesus? He said, I am He. And what happened? Everybody fell over backwards. Because the presence of Almighty God. And he just spoke his name and they all fell down. And then we know that Peter grabbed his sword. And Peter would rather fight for God than suffer for him, as we're going to see tonight. But Peter being a fisherman without very good aim, I believe he's trying to cut someone's head off. And all he got was his ear, right? But what's amazing to me is the Lord bends down, picks up his ear, and puts his ear back on. And this guy's a servant of the high priest. And they still arrested Jesus. He says, I am. They all fall down. And they all get up, brush themselves off. He cuts an ear off, puts the ear back on, and they still want to arrest him. Again, it shows the world is so blind to who Jesus really is. So tonight we're going to see him tried before the religious leaders, beginning in verse 53. It says, And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with them were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Now let's talk about these guys. As soon as Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was led back through Jerusalem to the household of the high priest Caiaphas. Now Caiaphas had ruled as high priest for over 18 years. That would be like someone being the president of the United States for 18 years. It was a very unusual thing. And his, his father-in-law had been high priest, a guy named, by the name of Annas, before he was high priest. But we also know that Jerusalem, during the time of Caiaphas, had become extremely corrupt. What did Jesus do when he went into the temple? What did he do? He, he turned over the tables because they turned his father's house into a den of thieves. They turned it away from being a place of worship, a place where God was glorified. And they turned it into a place that was all about money. And you know what? The priests were getting their pockets lined. They're getting their pockets lined by charging people uh, extra money on money-changing issues or by charging them for really high amounts for animals to be sacrificed. And you know what? This guy's been in charge all that time. And you know what? It's become a den of thieves under his leadership. And he had profited greatly. And Caiaphas viewed Jesus one way. Every time you see Caiaphas in the Bible, we see one thing. He wants to put Jesus to death every time you see him. And you know why? Because Caiaphas had a good gig, and he didn't want Jesus to mess it up. He was the high priest, man. I'm the, I'm the most religious guy in town. You know, I'm the pope of the day. I mean, no one's going to question me. I'm making lots of money. Everybody, everybody looks up to me. They think I'm such a religious and a wonderful man. And you know what? Here comes Jesus coming along, turning over tables in the temple, telling them that they were a brood of vipers, a bunch of snakes. And you know what? That, that wasn't doing much for his position. And so he didn't think much of Jesus Christ. And so when they capture him by night, and isn't it interesting that they go and they capture Jesus by night? You know, they don't go out in the middle of the day. They're afraid of what the people might say. So they go at night and they capture him and they bring him to the home of Caiaphas. And waiting there are the scribes and the Pharisees to put Jesus on trial after midnight. This is against the law and illegal, but it didn't seem to bother them much. But at the same time, we're going to see a lot of hypocrisy. So instead of being broken and repentant at the words of Jesus Christ that he had heard, instead he envied Jesus. And what's amazing to me, again, is that, that what do the scribes and the high priests and the, and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, what do these guys do? What are they supposed to be studying? The law, the Bible, the, the scriptures of the day, which is the Old Testament. And what did the, who did the Old Testament point to? It all points to Jesus. And shouldn't he have recognized him when he showed up? But he didn't, because you know what? Just like most of the church today, the Pharisees, I believe, for the most part, were, were biblically illiterate. You know, the problem in the church today is, you know, we need to read, you know, read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? We need to blow the dust off our Bibles and start reading them. 
And the problem is that we've got sermonettes for Christianettes. We've got, you know, the seven-minute message, and, you know, we don't want to offend anybody. You know, the Bible says, again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And even these guys didn't get it. They envied, he envied Jesus' position. I'll never forget, it says in Matthew 27, 18, for he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. I'll never forget, a few years ago, I was working in Southern California. There's a lady in my office. I used to talk to her about the Lord all the time. And she came up to me one day and said, hey, can you come talk to my boyfriend? Because she goes, he's having these conversations with the devil. And she said, I thought, you know, who do I know that knows the Bible? So would you come talk to him? And so I took another guy from my office. And I believe it's one of the few, if not the only time, I've ever truly seen somebody who's demon-possessed. Because this guy was. And one of the things he kept saying over and over and over again is Jesus Christ is not supposed to be at the right hand of the Father. I am. He told me that over and over and over again. He envied Jesus Christ. He wanted to be at the right hand of the Father. He wanted to be the one on the throne. And you know what? That's the same thing that goes on in the world today. The reason people don't want Jesus Christ in their life is they want to be on the throne of their own life. They want to be like Caiaphas. They want to be in charge. They don't want to submit to God. They don't want to serve Him. So his hatred for Jesus was personal again. And it says in Matthew 26, that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill Him. But they said, we better not do it during the day because people will see us. They feared God and they did not fear men. I mean, they feared men, they didn't fear God. And so there's an uproar among the people, but he takes them by day. So he takes them by night. They take them back to the house of the high priest. And now they're going to put Jesus on trial. And what's awesome to me is what Satan means for evil, God will always use for good. There's a peace in that. We don't have to struggle because God is faithful and he's in control. It says the second part of that verse, they assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Now the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, since all this was happening, on one given night, either they all had to be woken up in the middle of the night and brought there, or they knew it was coming. And they were consenting to putting Jesus to death. I believe it's the latter. They were consenting because they too were losing their position, and they didn't want to lose it. And performed this wickedness in the middle of the night, man's attempt to cover his sins, points to his deeds, evil nature. You know, Judas went out, what does it say right after that? And it was what? It was night. You know what, have you ever noticed, I used to sell restaurant equipment, I never forget, every time I would go into a restaurant that had a bar, it didn't matter if it was 10 o'clock in the morning, the bar would be pitch black. You stand outside the bar and at 10 o'clock in the morning, it's pitch black in there. But I guess if you're drinking whiskey at 10 a.m., you probably want it dark. But, you know, the point is that people want to hide and cover up their sin, and this is what they're doing with Christ. It's the middle of the night, they try to scurry him away under the cover of darkness. Verse 4, 54, but Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. So Peter follows at a distance. Now you can say we should congratulate Peter because at least Peter followed. All the other guys just ran in the opposite direction. But you know what? It's not the initial following that matters. It's, a, it's how our walk continues. And Peter here exemplifies what fleshly weakness and the fear of men can produce in the life of a believer. The first thing we'll see is distance from the Savior. He followed Jesus at what? A distance, the Bible says. You know what? We are never to be walking with God at a distance. Amen? If you're walking at a distance with the Lord, you're not gonna, there's going to be no fruit in your life. We need to be drawn near to Him, and He will draw near to us, the Bible says. It, at a distance is a picture of broken fellowship. Fleshly pride and, and boldness equals spiritual failure. Then look what it says there. Where was He? He warmed Himself at the fire. Whose fire is that? The word there is anthrokia. 
And that word is only two places in the Bible. We're going to get to it in a few chapters. But I think it's interesting that he's warming himself by this anthrokia, which is a hot coal fire. And as he's warming himself by this hot coal fire, he's standing with who? Standing with the enemy. You know what? When we are, two things happen in the life of a believer when we follow at a distance. We have distance from our Savior, and then we have fellowship with the world. He's standing there right in the courtyard. He's hanging out at the fire. And you know, after Pentecost, Peter's going to boldly proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. But you know what? He's going to cower away from opportunities here. We're going to see fearful, faithless, fleshly Peter in the high priest's courtyard, sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire, and he's in the improper place with the improper people. The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. And it doesn't mean sometimes. It means every single time. Most of you know I spent almost 15 years as a high school pastor. And I love high school kids. But one of the things that high school kids struggle with, that adults struggle with, is that that company thing. The bad company corrupts good morals. They want to fit in. They want to be with the crowd. They want to wear the right stuff. They want to be cool. And you know what? I I don't think it changes much as we get older. We just change the things that we think make us cool. Instead of being the clothes we wear now, it's the car we drive or the house that we live in. And the reality is, we need to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So early in the spring night, it's cool outside, and no doubt it was kind of cold, so he went over to warm himself by the fire. His fleshly desires drew him near the world. You know, because his flesh was cold, he went by the fire to hang out with the world. When we warm ourselves at the enemy's fire, we have fellowship with the world. Instead of encouragement and accountability in our walk with God, we find degradation, ungodly counsel, and accusation. When you're hanging out with unbelievers, do they encourage you to walk with God? Hey, yeah, you know what? You shouldn't be doing that, man. You know, you shouldn't be looking at that other woman. You're married. They're like, they're, go, they're over there going, I'm with you, right? They're checking out the baby. They're, they're the ones encouraging you to lie. They're the ones encouraging you to cheat on your taxes. They're the ones that tell you, you don't, it doesn't matter. You know what? And bad company does corrupt good morals. And as Christians, we should be camped out at Jesus' feet, not the enemy's campfire. Amen? We should be like Mary. Where was Mary? Every time you see Mary in the New Testament, where is she? Jesus' feet every single time. And you know what? Not the enemy's campfire. Bad things happen. Verse 55. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Well, I guess so. Jesus Christ is innocent. He'd never done anything wrong. He's the only perfect man that ever lived. He's 100% God, 100% man. And the Jewish leaders could find no accusation against him. They also could not carry out an execution, but they could recommend it to the Roman rulers. But they had to have an accusation of some kind. And what's amazing to me is they call these guys in. They're going to start bribing people to make accusations against Jesus. And what's interesting to me is they want to they live by the letter of the Mosaic law, but it's okay if you pay somebody off to do it. You know what I mean? These guys are such hypocrites. You know what I mean? They, oh, we've got to keep the law. But it doesn't matter if we lie, cheat, and steal to keep the law. We've got to keep the law. You know, we've got to have two or more witnesses. We've got to do things the right way. So let's get some guys in here. And so they start paying people off and bribing people to get them to come in and make recommendations to be false witnesses against Christ. Verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. You know what the Bible says in the Mosaic Law, it's in, it's in Leviticus, that two have to agree together. Or they can't, it says you cannot put a man to death by the witness of only one man. So these men are coming in, and they're making false witness, and they don't agree. So they're like, man, we've got to find two that agree. Now it's interesting to me, you know who's supposed to keep there from being false witnesses? You know the ones that are in charge to make sure there's nobody making false accusations that they can't back up? The scribes, the priests, and the Pharisees. We've got a problem here. We've got, we got inmates running the asylum, right? We've got these ungodly men in charge of an ungodly process portraying to be themselves as godly. So 
in order to convict someone of a crime again, they had to find two that would agree. And here we have these, these ungodly men. But you know what's awesome to me is God is still in control. When Jesus Christ is going before an unjust judge, when he's being treated unjustly in an ungodly way, it was all according to God's perfect plan. And when you're mistreated at work, and you're mistreated in your relationships, and something's going on in your life that just doesn't seem right, remember that God is in control. Amen? The Bible says all things work together for good for those who trust in God and are called according to his purpose. Not some things, all things. So no matter what's going on in your life, God is faithful and God is in control. Verse 57. And some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will bind another made without hands. I'll build up another. So here we see the ultimate hypocrisy. These guys want to adhere to the law, so they're calling in people, and these guys make false accusations against Christ. Now this sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it, what they just read? Didn't Jesus say something like that? The answer is he did say something like that, but that's not exactly what he said. And that's exact, that's an absolutely a tool of the enemy. One of the things that the enemy will do is take God's word out of context. Where do all the cults come from? All of them. They take God's word out of context. You know, and I'm going to give you a little Bible lesson here in a minute, but, you know, in James 2.19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But what was he talking about? He's talking about himself. Now, later in chapter 10, he's told them that the temple would be destroyed and what not one stone would lay upon another. Those are two separate things. They had brought those two things together to bring accusation against Jesus Christ. When you take a text out of context, all you got left is a con, right? Amen? So we need to, we need to teach God's word in context. That's why it troubles me when people, you know, again, sermonettes for Christianettes. When, when we're teaching two verses or, or one word out of a verse, we take a verse from here and a verse from there, and then we try to come up with a concept. It's, you know, that's very difficult to do and keep things in their context. Jesus later, again, did predict it, but they portrayed Jesus as a blasphemer, disloyal because he's going to destroy the temple. And not unlike many false teachers today who twist the word of God, take it out of context to fit their predisposition, so today. How many have ever heard the words isogesis and exogesis? Exogesis. Isogesis is when you have a predetermined premise. I have a, a, this is what I believe already. Now I'm going to make the scripture fit. I believe in the prosperity doctrine. So I'm going to take a verse out over here that says, you know, if you just believe and you have faith, you have faith, and you know, you really believe it, then God has to give you what you want, right? And there's some guys who are on TV every week, and it's all about prosperity doctrine. The Bible says to teach the whole counsel of God. Amen? And you know what? God will take care of our needs, but it ain't about physical prosperity. It's, you know, sickness is a result of a lack of faith, and they'll just teach on that over and over and over. Faith's a movable object. God's a big holy Santa Claus up in the sky, and if you just keep telling him, he has to give you what you want, because it's the words of your faith, right? It's faith and faith, right? Well, how does all that mess happen? It happens because of eisegesis. You take things out of context, and you try to make the Word of God fit. I've heard it said that you can prove that the Bible teaches suicide, right? You know, Judas went out and hung himself, and the Bible also says, go therefore and do likewise, right? I mean, you can take verses totally out of context, put them together, and you can teach people just about anything. And that's why we need to teach the whole counsel of God. That's why I have a burden here, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. On Wednesday night, we're going through the book of Genesis. We're not going to skip one verse and one genealogy. Everything that's in the Bible is in there for a reason. Amen? That, you know, God didn't just slip some stuff in there on accident. Every single line in the Bible is in there for a reason. So we're going to look at every single line. Exegesis makes the Bible the premise. Amen? 
It's not man's opinion. The Bible is the premise. I had a friend of mine, right when he got out of Bible college, used to say, I got to find the wow in the text, man. I got to find the wow. I got to wow him, man. I got I to find something no one's ever seen before. Let me tell you something. If it's something no one's ever seen before, it's probably not there. Amen? And instead of trying to find the wow in the text, let the text be the wow. Amen? Let the word of God be the wow. You know, Bible is awesome. I love God's word. It's, it's great. And, you know, we should get excited about it. And what we win people with is what we'll win them to. And, again, if you take a text out of context, all you got left is a con. And so all truth extracted straight from the word of God and taken in its context. And so these guys, again, what are they doing? They're bringing false witnesses, and then they're accusing Jesus Christ with words taken out of context. We heard him say that he was going to do this. Totally out of context. It's not even what Jesus said. False accusations. Verse 59. But not even... But not even then did their testimony agree. So even when they're paying guys off, they can't even get two guys to agree. And you know what I love? I've shared this with you guys a hundred times, so here's 101. The Bible is 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents and three languages, over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions. And how's that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? But yet these guys are sitting in the same room with each other at the same time, and they still can't agree. They can't even make up the same lie together. You know, that's, didn't it just show you how powerful the Bible is? Amen? I mean, you've got 1,500 years separating it, but it's God's Word. No revisions. We don't need to revise the Bible because God's Word is perfect. And so these false accusations are in the same room, and they can't even come together. Verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst of them and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? Caiaphas stood up, and he comes forward, attempting to salvage this tense situation when the, when the continued false charges were failing to establish a case or elicit a response from the Lord. The Lord just sat there. They're making all these false lies about him, and he just sits there and listens. Now, let me ask you a question. Haven't we seen in the Bible many, many, many times where the Lord just shut him down with a word? He would just shut him down. They'd be saying something, he'd say two words, and they'd go, oh, they walk away. We're going to trick him. We're going to trick him, you know. Oh, should we pay taxes or not? We'll get him either way. If he says yes, then okay, he's honoring Caesar. And if he says no, then, then, then we'll get him because he's denying the Romans. And hey, this will be great. And he says, give me a coin. Shows again that he didn't have any money because he's the Lord. That doesn't really work very well with the faith movement, by the way. He's supposed to have a lot of money. But he didn't have any money. So he had asked somebody for a coin. And he said, whose face is on it? Well, it's Caesar's. He said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. The Lord repeatedly, when they came to trick him, just shut him down because he's almighty God. He can't fool God. Amen? He's almighty. He's the creator of the universe. I think he knows a little more than we do. And so what happens here is they can't elicit a response from him. They're going after him, and he just sat there, and he was silent. And he tries to overcome the lack of evidence with volume and intensity. Have you ever seen that before? People get in an argument, and the one who's losing is usually the one who's loudest. You ever notice that? You know, they just start yelling. I don't have any facts, but whatever. You know, they just get louder. Right? And, and you, I can tell which one of my kids is in trouble. The one's yelling aloud. Oh you, oh, you did it. You know what I mean? And so, you know what? That's what happens here. Caiaphas starts getting fired up. And he starts, yeah, bring, you know, I have no evidence, so I'm just going to make it real loud. And I'm going to get in his face. And I'm the high priest after all. Right? I'm the pope. You know what I mean? I can you know, make this happen. The Lord just sat there and listened. One speaking loudest in the argument is usually the one who's losing. And so he says to him, what do you have to say for yourself to Jesus? And again, Jesus sits there and he's silent. You know what? He sets an example for each one of us. How many of you have been ridiculed before unfairly? Raise your hand. How many of you have been accused of things that you didn't do? You know what? Especially if you're a Christian in the workplace. 
The more sold out you are for Jesus Christ, the more the world's going to hate it. You know, if you're an undercover Christian, you'll probably get along with everybody just fine. You know what I mean? You go to work and you don't let anybody know you're saved. Oh, another day, no one else found out I'm saved. You know, I used to tell the kids in the youth group, you know, the undercover Christian prayer. They go, they sit it. You know, I'm supposed to pray over my meal. Dear Lord, thank you for this food. Jesus, name, amen. Nobody saw me. You know what I mean? Kind of that mentality. And if we if we become the undercover Christian, then nobody will know, and we probably won't face a lot of persecution. But if we're sold out for God, we will be persecuted. Amen. And you know what? Persecution means that God's using us. So praise the Lord. And you know what? If you live in Santa Cruz, hey, you've been called to one of the darkest places around. Santa Cruz means Holy Cross, and it's going to be a holy place again. I'm convinced of it. And you know what? But revival has to start in each one of our lives so that we might be salt and light to this dark place. But you know what? Here these guys are, and what are they doing? They're coming for the Lord, and he starts yelling at the Lord. Well, I'm going to, you know, and the Lord has patience under calamity. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When he was reviled, he did not reveal, revile in return. When he had suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. There's only one judge we need to worry about, and it's not the high priest. It is our high priest. It's the great high priest. It's Jesus Christ. Amen? What Caiaphas thinks is irrelevant. So then he asked Jesus' question. Now look what it says here. And I love his question, verse 61. It proves that Caiaphas had been listening at least a little bit. But he kept silent and answered nothing. And again the high priest said to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Christ? How would he know that that's who he was? Because Jesus had taught it for three years. And he had heard him teach it. But he didn't receive it. He could have gone to the Old Testament. He could have looked at the Word of God. But instead, he, had a, he was more t caught up in his rules and his rituals and his position. But here's what's interesting to me. He says, the Son of the Blessed. He doesn't say the Son of God. You know why he didn't say the Son of God? Not because, and that's a good input, maybe because it was blasphemy. You know what? These guys had such a reverence for the name of God, they wouldn't even speak the name of God. They have this awe and fear and trembling and reverence for the name of God, so they won't speak the name of God, but yet they'll put the son of the living God to death. Is there a problem? I mean, they've missed it. Oh, we keep in the rituals. We're not supposed to say God's name. So are you the son of the blessed? That's a good word. And instead of wanting to know who he truly is, they're trying to keep the rules, the, ritual, the rituals, and the, reg and the regulations. They have disdain for the very son of the living God who stood in front of them. It fulfills messianic prophecy. And, and, and again, all this is happening during what time of the year? What's going on? It's Passover. We've got to hurry up and put him to death before the Passover is over. We've got to hurry up and kill him before, so we can get back to our feast. It's amazing to me that the Passover feast is pointing to Jesus. Again, we've talked about this the last few weeks. Passover is a remembrance of what happened when they were delivered out of Egypt, when the angel of death passed over, when the blood was placed on the mantle on the top and the bottom of the door, which we know is a representation, a picture of the cross. It was blood of a firstborn lamb, which points to Jesus Christ. And then the feast of the unleavened bread. Unleavened bread representing without sin. Well, what is that a picture of? It's a picture of Jesus Christ. So all these pictures of Jesus Christ all around them. They've got all these feasts going on. This has been the foreordained before the foundation of the world, time that he would die at Passover. And what do they do? They are trying to hurry up so they can get back to their rituals. You know what? Are you the Messiah we've been waiting for? Are you the very Son of God? That's what he asks them. And again, it clearly shows that he's heard the message, but contrary to it, he doesn't believe it. You know, what kind of Messiah were they looking for? They were looking for a military conqueror, not someone who was going to come and suffer and die on their behalf. Are you, the, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, Jesus is going to speak up, and look what he says. Jesus said, I 
am. I love that. Exodus 3, 13 and 14, Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. So what's God's name? I am. Not I was, not I will be, not I might be, not I'm going to be. I am. Amen? He's the great I am. Last week when they came to arrest Jesus, again, what did they say? They came and said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? What did he say? I am what happened? They all fell over. Why? Because they were in the presence of Almighty God. You know what I love about the Bible? Jesus also says, I am, ego emi, which says, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? That's the thing. Those words came out of Jesus' mouth, and he is the great I am. People say Jesus never claimed to be God. I don't know what Bible they're reading, because all he does is claim to be God every, on every page. Amen? Because he is God. Jesus is God. He always has been. He always will be. And amazingly, here he is being put on trial by these religious leaders out of the very world that he created and would die for. It says here, I am, and you will see the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a messianic term that Jesus uses in regards to himself over 80 times in the New Testament alone. Son of Man is a name for the Messiah. And he says to them, I am the Messiah, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of power. The Lord says, it says in, in Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool. Then it says there, he says, sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7.13 says, I am watching in night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus tells him, not, all, I, not only am I the Messiah, but I am the one who is going to be seated at the right hand of the Father, and then I am going to come back to bring judgment upon a, a perverse and wicked world. That's what he's telling them right there in that sentence. And these guys should know that. Why? Because they're studiers of the Old Testament. Sitting at the right hand is a place of intercession on our behalf. The praise of the great high priest. Coming with clouds of heaven points to God's return in order to punish the wicked. Those who are judging him now would one day be judged by him. Verse 63. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further needs do we have of this witness? Tearing his clothes, a gesture any Jew would use in times of great grief. Remember, those of you been coming on Wednesday night, a few weeks ago, when Jacob was told by his sons that, it, that Joseph was dead, what did he do? Tore his clothes. When they hear blasphemy, they would tear their clothes. Then Leviticus 10.6, Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not cover your heads, nor tear your clothes, lest you die, and the wrath of God come upon you and all the people. The high priest was never to tear his clothes. Never. But what is Caiaphas doing? He's tearing his clothes, contrary to what Scripture had said. The law forbid the tearing of the clothes by the high priest, and Caiaphas' act was a contrived display of grief and indignation over presumed dishonoring of the name of God by Jesus Christ. And as when Saul tore Samuel's mantle, how many remember that story? Samuel, Saul is anointed the first king of Israel. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And he's anointed the first king of Israel, and during his reign, we know that he becomes an ungodly man. And he turns away from the Lord. And Samuel comes to him and says, you're not the king anymore. Your kingdom's been ripped from you. And when, when Saul, Samuel started to walk away, it says that Saul reached out and tore Samuel, who was the high priest, tore his mantle. And I believe 
that that's a picture of the mantle being torn away from Saul, that he was going to lose his kingdom. When Jesus died on the cross, what is one of the many things? What was torn in half? The veil. The most holy place. You could only, only the high priest was able to enter the most holy of holies, right? Well, guess what? When the veil was torn, now we can enter in anywhere and anytime. Amen? We can enter into the holy place driving down the, driving down the freeway. We can enter into that most holy place. And I believe that Caiaphas unwittingly doesn't even know that tearing his own clothes signified the removal of the priesthood completely from him. Because just hours later, the veil would be torn and we can all enter in. We only have one high priest and it's Jesus Christ. No man. Verse 64. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Jesus is condemned to death. Why? Why did they condemn Jesus to death? What is it that he just said? I'm God. I'm the Messiah. I'm going to be seated at the right hand of the Father, and I'm coming back. Kill him. That's what he said. That's why Jesus Christ went to the cross, because he proclaimed to be God. You know, the world, again, will tell you he never proclaimed to be God, but that's exactly why he went to the cross. And look, at the, look how they responded to him. Verse 65. They began to spit on him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him, and to say to him, prophesy, and the others struck him with the palms of their hands. Now, can you imagine this? Here he is, the son of the living God, the creator of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega. He's lived a sinless, perfect life, and all he's ever done is love people. All he's ever done is go and minister to the prostitute and minister to the tax collectors. He would even share the truth in the temple. And even when they would turn him away, he would continually give them opportunities to know him. And it says here, they spit on him. Now, for the Jews to spit in another person's face was the grossest, most hateful form of personal insult possible. And that's what they did to our Savior. Then it says they beat him. Their brutal cruelty reached a climax and they revealed their great depravity of their hearts when they beat him. And that word there is they hit him with closed fists. So they blindfolded our Savior and then they took their fists and they ran up and they hit him as hard as they could in the face. These are the religious leaders who are doing this. These are the, the pastors of the day. And they, they want to keep their position so badly that they're hitting Jesus in the face as hard as they can. And then the response is after they beat him, it says they say to him, prophesy. They hit him in the face and then they would jeeringly ask him to prophesy who hit him. They blindfolded him and hit him in the face. Okay, who hit you then if you're God? If you're the prophet, if you're the son of God, tell us who hit you. You know what's amazing to me is as they're beating on Jesus Christ, not only did he know who hit him, but I, you know, I don't know what God is thinking because he's almighty God. But can you imagine he must have sat there and thought, you know, not only do I know who's hitting me, but I'm going to go die for him because I love him. They're beating him. They're mocking him. They're spitting on him. The, the worst is yet to come. And yet the Lord took it. And you know why he took it? Because he loves everybody in this room. Amen. You know, people talk about what you're worth. You know, we don't need to esteem self. We need to deny self. But you know what? The value of something is determined by what somebody's willing to pay for it. And what was paid for you is that Almighty God came to earth and suffered and died, was beaten, mocked, and scourged, taken advantage of. And he did it because he loved each one of us. It's been said that nails didn't hold him to the cross. It was his love for us. He's Almighty God. He could have called a legion of angels out of the sky. We know that one angel wiped out 185,000 in the Old Testament. What would a legion of angels do? He could just speak and turn everybody into dust because he's Almighty God. But he didn't do that. He hung on the cross out of his love for us. And not only did he know it was hitting him, 
You know what's amazing to me? The way that they beat him. I heard this story, and I actually, it, it, it blessed me to think about it. The Jesus movie. How many of you ever heard of the Jesus movie? Okay, they take it all over the world. And they took it out into Africa where people had never had seen any electricity. And they would take out these portable movie screens, and the screen would set up right in the middle of a field. And they would literally watch the movie from both sides. Because it would portray on the screen, and there's hundreds, if not thousands, of pe- tribal people out there watching. And as they're watching the movie, they're watching from Jesus' birth on up. And it gets to the point to where they start beating Jesus. And I read of a story that when they were beating Jesus, the tribesmen attacked the screen to save him. Their hearts were so broken that people were beating him. They had watched Jesus. They watched how he treated people. They watched what he taught. They heard what he said. And their hearts were broken. And they were running and attacking the screen trying to save him. Don't you love that? I thought, amen. But you know what? Jesus had to die that we might have eternal life. And you know what? It's a lot easier to fight for the Lord than it is to suffer for him. It says here that the officers struck him. What's interesting to me, these are the same officers who come to arrest Jesus when he said, I am, they all fell down. And then one put it, got his ear chopped off and put back on his head, and now they're beating Jesus Christ with their open fists, it says. You know, there are religious leaders today who continue to spit in the face of Jesus Christ. How do people today spit in Jesus' face? Let me tell you how. When they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. When someone says that Jesus Christ is not God, it's like taking their fist and hitting him in the face. It's no different. When they say, when they teach that there are other ways besides Jesus Christ to get to heaven. You know, right in this room, in this room we're meeting in right now and in this building, you know, one day of the week they're teaching you, you know, the, the white serpents in your, in your uh, spine and you've got to get it out through yoga. And then the next day they've got the church of the inner light teaching that, you know, the God's within you and you've got to summon the God out of you. And then, you know, they've got all this stuff going on in here. But Jesus Christ is the only way, he's the only truth, he's the only life. Amen? And when people try to teach, oh, there's many paths, there's many ways to get to God, that's a lie. And that's spitting in the face of our Savior. When they water down the Word of God and they start saying, well, the Word of God, you know, it's got some errors in it. And, you know, we, we gotta, you know we're going to take some of these books out. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to get together and have a Jesus seminar. I mean, you ever heard of that before, right? And they all get together and they get beads. And they start going through and reading what Jesus said. And then they vote on whether or not Jesus really said it. Oh, six black votes to four white ones? He didn't say it. Take it out of the Bible. That's spitting in the face of our Savior. Amen? When they teach Jesus Christ, death alone is not a cross. We, enough. Jesus died on the cross, but you've got to do that, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and then you'll be saved. You've got to be baptized in our baptismal on a Thursday night between 7.45 and 8 o'clock, and you've got to say it in certain words. You've got to be wearing the right color robe, and if you don't keep all those rituals, you're not going. There's, we laugh, but there are churches out there just like that. They say it's Jesus plus something else. Jesus Christ alone is sufficient. When he died on the cross, he said, Tetalistai. Amen? Which means it is finished. Jesus Christ plus nothing equals salvation. When they build ministries with themselves as a central figure instead of Jesus Christ. You know what? If I see a ministry with a guy's name on it, I want to throw up. You know, if I watch on TV, the worldwide ministry of, and it's got some guy's name in big letters. You know what? That's, that's nauseating. And I believe it's spitting in the face of our Savior. Amen? It's all about Jesus. He's the head of the church, not the pastor. pastor's job is to serve. When they advocate the worship of saints... Some of you got, oh, well, well, I'm getting into the kitchen now. But here's the reality. You know what? Saints are set apart ones. You know what? Everybody in this room, if you've been born again, you're a saint. Amen? And I hope you're not going home and praying to me at night. You know what I mean? It ain't very effective, right? It ain't going to work. And why would you go home and pray to dead sinners when you can pray to a risen living Savior? Amen? 
You know what? If anybody could grieve in heaven, it would be the saints. Can you imagine Mary in heaven? No! No, no, don't pray to me. Oh, she's God's mom. So, you know, yeah, moms are with their kids. That's pathetic. Show me that in the Bible. It's not scriptural, and I believe it's a spit and spitting in the face of Jesus Christ when you make those kind of claims. It's Jesus Christ alone. When they make the votes and opinions of men the authority instead of the word of God. Well, we voted on it. We've decided that now we're going to have uh, homosexual pastors. We just voted on it. We want to catch up with the rules of today. So that's what we're going to do. And your biblical basis for that would be, well, we don't have one, but you know, we voted on it. And it's a spitting in the face of Jesus Christ. May we never spit in his face by making him any less than he is. He's God, he's Lord, he's Savior. He's Alpha and Omega, he's the Creator, and he's the way. And may we never make ourselves any more than we are. And let me tell you what you are if you don't know already. You're a bunch of stinking, vile sinners in need of a Savior just like me. Amen? Aren't you? And a lot of churches won't tell you that because you might not come back and you might tithe as much as if I tell you you're a sinner. But I have no problem telling you you guys are a bunch of stinking sinners and so am I. Sinners, miss the mark. We need Jesus. Amen? And if we ever stop needing Jesus, we got a problem. If we ever start putting our faith in a man or our faith in a church, we're in big trouble. Let's finish up the chapter. Verse 67. 66. Now Peter was below in the courtyard, and one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You are with Jesus of Nazareth. Now remember that Peter had no fear when 700 guys with lanterns and clubs and swords showed up. And now a little servant girl comes up and says, you were with Jesus. Now watch his response. Look what he says. You're with Jesus. And he says, but he denied it saying, I neither know or understand what you're saying. Pete. Peter's greatest strength became the reason that he fell. You know, a lot of pastors will tell you that you need to guard yourself against your area of weakness. And I believe that's true. But I believe the biggest place we stumble is a place that we think we're the strongest. You know why? Because we start trusting in myself. I start trusting in my flesh. I start trusting in my ability instead of being broken and desperate for Almighty God. You know, when I start thinking, well, I've got this part knocked. I'm pretty good. At that. Well, you know, worship. I, you know, I've been leading worship 25 years. It's no problem. I'll just get up here and make it happen. As soon as you start doing that, you need to get out. Amen? Why? We need to be desperate for God every single day. And you know what happened? What happens here is that Peter's greatest strength was his boldness. And you know what happened? What was he doing when they were in the garden? When the Lord told him, watch and pray, Peter, that you might not fall into temptation. What was Peter doing? Sleeping. Those guys sleep all the time. The apostles, right? Not the apostles. The apostles that are sleeping all the time. And you wonder why they fall into temptation. They fall into temptation because they're not in prayer and they're not in the Word. They're sleeping. We need to fall, not fall asleep, because if we do, we're going to fall into temptation. He said, and when it says Jesus of Nazareth, that was a slam, because Nazareth was considered a low place. They were looked down upon. They were Judeans. You guys from Nazareth. You guys are a bunch of dogs. You're with Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, no, I don't even know what you're talking about. Peter, again, in a very legal and formal way, says, I don't know what you're talking about. He's scared to death of a little servant girl, where before he was willing to fight an army. And he says here, and he went out to the porch and a rooster crowed. He goes out to the porch, and the porch is like an entryway. He's trying to hide, get away from the light of the fire, get away from being seen, get away from, from being called on it. And he denied Christ before men at the time when he should have openly confessed him. Let me ask you a question, and I'm raising my hand already. How many of you have known that you know that you know that God's telling you to speak up for him, and you didn't do it because you were afraid of what people would say? Man, and doesn't that hurt? Doesn't it? You know what I'm talking about? You, get, you raise your hand and you say, God says to you, I want you to share your faith with somebody. And then what do you do? Sometimes, oh man, he might, 
He might not like me anymore. Maybe I won't have the right words. Or what if he asks me a question that I don't have the answer to? And we, out of fear of men, instead of fear of God, we back down. We need to be praying daily that God would indwell us with his Holy Spirit and strengthen us that we might not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. What's Peter doing? He's denying the Lord. The good news is that God is a forgiving God. Verse 69, And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again, and a little later those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. He had an accent. The way that he spoke gave him away. And he's confronted by the servant girl again. He denies his association with the Lord. And then finally, a third time, your speech shows it. You know, and again, it's easier to fight for God than to suffer for him. And he denied it. The word there is in a tense that he kept on denying. Peter's speech gave him away. They knew that he was a Galilean. And on a side note, you know what? As Christians, our speech should give us away. Amen? The way that we talk ought to make people think, you're, you're one of them, aren't you? you? You hang out with Jesus, don't you? Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? That we should be talking so that people want to know there's something different about us. We've been hanging out with Jesus. Then he began, look what it says about Peter. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He won't even use Jesus' name. He says, I don't even know this man. He went from, Lord, I'll die for you. No matter, if everybody else denies you, Lord, I won't. I'm going to fight to the death, Lord. I don't even know who you're talking about. A little servant girl is chasing him away. Girl means adolescent, prepubescent. You've been eight years old. You're one of them. No, no, I'm not. You're right. I mean, he's scared. Fear overtook Peter. And he began to curse profanity or a curse upon himself and to swear the word there is to make an oath, much like the oath he made to never deny Jesus. And he wouldn't even speak the name of Jesus out of the fear of men. Last verse. A second time the rooster crowed. That Peter called to mind the word that, of Jesus that came to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And then when he thought about it, he wept. In Luke 22, I love this, it says, But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And look what it says. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine? He's been walking with Jesus for three years. He's one of the inner circle. He's one of the three, Peter, James, and John. He gets to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. When they went in, they healed Jeru's daughter. Who was there? When they went up on the Mount of Garden of Gethsemane to pray, who got to go? Peter. When he, when he said to Peter, your name is no longer Cephas. Your name is now Peter, Petra, Petros, right? A small rock. You're a chip off the old block. You know, the flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. God revealed this to you, Peter. Look at you, Peter. You're a pretty man. All right. And now he's cursing him. And saying, I don't even know who he is. And at that moment, can you imagine? He's cursing the Lord and he looks up. And he sees the beaten, spit upon, marred face of Jesus Christ. Looking across the courtyard into his eyes. Man, that would hurt. And it says he went away and he wept bitterly. But I, want to, I don't want to end with that. Let me end with the good news. While the Lord saw his sin, he also saw his repentant heart. As Peter went away and wept bitterly, when Jesus rose from the dead, Mary appeared, he appeared to Mary. What did he say? He said, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I have risen. Isn't that good? 
He said, you know what, Peter, I saw you when you denied me, but I saw you when you loved me. I saw, me when, I saw you, when you when you cursed me, but I've seen that your heart is broken before me. And you know what, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I've healed him. Who was one of the first ones that came to the tomb? It was Peter. So you know what, if you're here tonight and you feel like you've denied the Lord, and you feel like you've made mistakes, and you feel like you've had opportunities to share your faith with others and you've backed down, just know that the Lord is a gracious, a loving, and a forgiving God. Amen? And no matter what we've done, you can take a million steps away from God, but it's only one step back. Amen? And He loves you so very much. Worship team, why don't you guys come on up? We're going to close a word of prayer and a worship song. While they're coming, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that, that You were the one that took the abuse for us. But Lord, we're the ones that deserve to be mocked and to be scourged and beaten and crucified. We're the sinful, wicked ones. And, Lord, you loved us enough to take our place. And I thank you, Lord, that if and when we deny you like Peter did, that, Lord, you love us enough that if we will repent and bring restoration. And, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would have the heart of Peter after Pentecost, when he was filled with your Holy Spirit, when he boldly proclaimed your truth. And, Lord, I pray again at this Christmas season that we would not get so caught up in buying gifts and doing all the other things that we forget that it's really all about you. What an opportunity for the gospel, Lord. I pray that we would use this as an opportunity to share our faith with a lost and dying world. That we would not water it down. That we would not spit in your face by the way that we talk about you. But Lord, we would proclaim you for who you truly are. The risen living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We worship and honor your name. You're such an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and worship.